Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Welcome to this special spooky Halloween edition of TLS Voices. Coming up are three extracts from scary literary stories. You'll hear Thea Lenaduzzi reading Edith Wharton and the Doctor Michael Caines reading Two Doctors by M.R. James. But first, here is something from me. This extract is from an early part of Dracula by Bram Stoker, first published in 1897. Jonathan Harker, the narrator, is an English solicitor who is visiting Count Dracula, a nobleman living in Transylvania. The following is taken from Harker's diary entry. This is early in his visit when Harker begins to realise that the Count, far from being a gracious host, is actually his exceedingly creepy captor. The diary begins. Later, the morning of 16th of May, God preserve my sanity, for to this I am reduced. Safety and the assurance of safety are things of the past. Whilst I live on here, there is but one thing to hope for, that I may not go mad, if indeed I be not mad already. If I be sane, then surely it is maddening to think that of all the foul things that lurk in this hateful place, the Count is the least dreadful to me, that to him alone I can look for safety, even though this be only whilst I can serve his purpose. Great God, merciful God, let me be calm, for out of that way lies madness indeed. I begin to get new lights on certain things which have puzzled me. Up to now, I never quite knew what Shakespeare meant when he made Hamlet say, My tablets, quick, my tablets, tis meet that I put it down, etc. For now, feeling as though my own brain were unhinged, or as if the shock had come which must end in its undoing, I turn to my diary for repose. The habit of entering accurately must help to soothe me. The Count's mysterious warning frightened me at the time. It frightens me more now when I think of it, for in future he has a fearful hold upon me. I shall fear to doubt what he may say. When I had written in my diary and had fortunately replaced the book and pen in my pocket, I felt sleepy. The Count's warning came into my mind, but I took a pleasure in disobeying it. The sense of sleep was upon me, and with it the obstinacy which sleep brings as outrider. The soft moonlight soothed and the wide expanse without gave a sense of freedom which refreshed me. I determined not to return tonight to the gloom-haunted rooms, but to sleep here, where, of old, ladies had sat and sung and lived sweet lives where their gentle breasts were sad for their menfolk away in the midst of remorseless wars. I drew a great couch out of its place near the corner so that as I lay, I could look at the lovely view to east and south, and unthinking of and uncaring for the dust, compose myself for sleep. I suppose I must have fallen asleep. I hope so, but I fear for all that followed was startlingly real. So real that now, sitting here in the broad, full sunlight of the morning, I cannot in the least believe that it was all sleep. I was not alone. The room was the same, unchanged in any way since I came into it. 
I could see along the floor in the brilliant moonlight my own footsteps marked where I disturbed the long accumulation of dust. In the moonlight opposite me were three young women, ladies by their dress and manner. I thought at the time that I must be dreaming when I saw them, for though the moonlight was behind them, they threw no shadow on the floor. They came close to me and looked at me for some time, and then whispered together. Two were dark and had high aquiline noses like the Count, and great dark piercing eyes that seemed to be almost red when contrasted with the pale yellow moon. The other was fair, as fair as can be, with great wavy masses of golden hair and eyes like pale sapphires. I seemed somehow to know her face and to know it in connection with some dreamy fear, but I could not recollect at the moment how or where. All three had brilliant white teeth that shone like pearls against the ruby of their voluptuous lips. There was something about them that made me uneasy, some longing at the same time some deadly fear. I felt in my heart a wicked, burning desire that they would kiss me with those red lips. It is not good to note this down, lest some day it should meet Mina's eyes and cause her pain, but it is the truth. They whispered together, and they all three laughed, such a silvery, musical laugh, but as hard as though the sound never could have come through the softness of human lips. It was like the intolerable, tingling sweetness of water glasses when played on by a cunning hand. The fair girl shook her head coquettishly, and the other two urged her on. One said, "'Go on, you're first, and we shall follow. Yours is the right to begin.' The other added, "'He is young and strong. There are kisses for us all.' I lay quiet, looking out under my eyelashes in an agony of delightful anticipation. The fair girl advanced and bent over me till I could feel the movement of her breath upon me. Sweet it was in one sense, honey-sweet, and sent the same tingling through the nerves as her voice, but with a bitter underlying the sweet, a bitter offensiveness as one smells in blood. I was afraid to raise my eyelids, but looked out and saw perfectly under the lashes. The girl went on her knees and bent over me, simply gloating. There was a deliberate voluptuousness which was both thrilling and repulsive, and as she arched her neck she actually licked her lips like an animal, till I could see in the moonlight the moisture shining on the scarlet lips and on the red tongue as it lapped the white, sharp teeth. Lower and lower went her head as the lips went below the range of my mouth and chin and seemed about to fasten on my throat. Then she paused and I could hear the churning sound of her tongue as it licked her teeth and lips and could feel the hot breath on my neck. Then the skin of my throat began to tingle as one's flesh does when the hand that is to tickle it approaches nearer, nearer. I could feel the soft, shivering touch of the lips on the super-sensitive skin of my throat and the hard dents of two sharp teeth just touching and pausing there. I closed my eyes in a languorous ecstasy and waited, waited with beating heart. But at that instant another sensation swept through me as quick as lightning. I was conscious of the presence of the Count, and of his being as if lapped in a storm of fury. As my eyes opened involuntarily, I saw his strong hand grasp the slender neck of the fair woman, and with giant's power draw it back, the blue eyes transformed with fury, the white teeth champing with rage, and the fair cheeks blazing red with passion. But the Count! Never did I imagine such wrath and fury, even to the demons of the pit. His eyes were positively blazing, the red light in them was lurid, as if the flames of hellfire blazed behind them. His face was deathly pale and the lines of it were hard like drawn wires. The thick eyebrows that met over the nose now seemed like a heaving bar of white hot metal. 
With a fierce sweep of his arm, he hurled the woman from him and then motioned to the others as though he were beating them back. It was the same imperious gesture that I'd seen used to the wolves, in a voice which, though low and almost in a whisper, seemed to cut through the air and then ring round the room, he said, "'How dare you touch him, any of you? How dare you cast eyes on him when I had forbidden it? Back, I tell you all, this man belongs to me. Beware how you meddle with him or you'll have to deal with me.'" Wharton is a favourite for this time of year, and I was reminded of this particular story, Mr Jones, written in 1929, by a fine collection of classic ghost stories produced by Folio last year. It's a claustrophobic little tale where omens gently layer on top of social commentary, damn patriarchy that stifles from the grave, and elements of parable, beware curiosity, beware peer pressure, beware singledom but equally marriage. And there's some interesting interior design in this too. The passages I'm about to read see Lady Jane, a 35-year-old woman of independent spirit and means, who has just inherited a dark old country house through some fluke of the family tree, set eyes on the house for the first time. The Mr Jones of the title, an elusive figure described by one of the maids as more dead than living, will deny her access this time. Bells, he says, via the maid, is not shown to visitors. But we'll skip ahead then until she's moved in and still not having met Mr Jones has invited a few friends, including the inquisitive novelist Edward Stramer, over for tea to take the chill off the place. Or so she hopes. Lady Jane Link was unlike other people. When she heard that she had inherited Bells, the beautiful old palace which had belonged to the Links of Thudney for something like 600 years, the fancy took her to go and see it unannounced. She was staying at a friend's nearby in Kent, and the next morning she borrowed a motor and slipped away alone. It was a lustrous, motionless day. Autumn bloom lay on the Sussex Downs, on the heavy trees of the Weald, on streams moving indolently far off across the marshes. Further still, Dungeness, a fitful streak, floated on an immaterial sky, which was perhaps, after all, only sky. In a dip of the land, the long, low house, its ripe brick masonry overhanging a moat deeply sunk about its roots, resembled an aged cedar spreading immemorial red branches. Lady Jane held her breath and gazed. A silence, distilled from years of solitude, lay on lawns and gardens. No one had lived at Bells since the last Lord Thudney, then a penniless younger son, had forsaken it sixty years before to seek his fortune in Canada. And before that, he and his widowed mother, distant poor relations, were housed in one of the lodges, and the great place, even in their day, had been as mute and solitary as the family vault. I shall never leave it, she ejaculated, her heart swelling as if she had taken the vow to a lover. She ran down the last slope of the park and entered the faded formality of gardens with clipped yews as ornate as architecture and holly hedges as solid as walls. Adjoining the house rose a low, deep buttressed chapel. Its door was ajar and she thought this of good augury. Her forebearers were waiting for her. Her eyes lit on one of the less ornate monuments, a plain sarcophagus of grey marble, surmounted by the bust of a young man with a fine, arrogant head, a Byronic throat and tossed black curls. Peregrine Vincent Theobald Link, Baron Clouds, 15th Viscount of Thudney of Bells, Lord of the Manors of Thudney, Thudney blazes, upper link, link linnet, so it ran, with the usual tedious enumeration of honours, titles, court and county offices, ending with, born on May 1st, 1790, 
perished of the plague at Aleppo in 1828. And underneath, in small cramped characters, as if crowded as an afterthought into an insufficient space, also his wife. That was all. No name, dates, honours, epithets for the Viscountess Sudney. Lady Jane racked her memory in vain. All she knew was that the death without issue of this Lord Thudney had caused the property to revert to the Croftlinks and so in the end brought her to this chancel step where, shyly, she knelt a moment, vowing to the dead to carry on their trust. She passed on to the entrance court and stood at last at the door of her new home, a blunt tweed figure in heavy mud-stained shoes. She felt as intrusive as a tripper and her hand hesitated on the doorbell, I ought to have brought someone with me, she thought, an odd admission on the part of a young woman who, when she was doing her books of travel, had prided herself on forcing single-handedly the most closely guarded doors. But those other places, as she looked back, seemed easy and accessible compared to Bell's. And Mr Jones, Stramer queried a few days later, as they sat, Lady Jane and the party from Kent, about an improvised tea table in a recess of one of the great holly hedges. The day was as hushed and warm as that on which she had first come to Bell's, and Lady Jane looked up with a smile of ownership at the old walls which seemed to smile back, the windows which now looked at her with friendly eyes. Mr Jones, who's Mr Jones? the other asked. Lady Jane hesitated. Mm, Mr Jones is my invisible guardian, or rather the guardian of Bell's. Invisible? You don't mean to say you haven't seen him yet? Not yet. Perhaps I never shall. He's he's very old and very ill, I'm afraid. And he still rules here. Oh, absolutely. The fact is, Lady Jane added, I believe he's the only person left who really knows all about Bells. Tea over, they moved on to inspect the house. The short autumn day was drawing to a close, but the party had been able to come only for an afternoon, instead of staying over the weekend, and having lingered so long in the gardens, they had only time indoors to puzzle out what they could through the shadows. Perhaps, Lady Jane thought, it was the best hour to see a house like Bell's, so long abandoned and not yet warmed into new life. The fire she had had lit in the saloon sent its radiance to meet them, giving the great room an air of expectancy and welcome, the portraits, the Italian cabinets, the shabby armchairs and rugs all looked as if life had but lately left them. My dear, what a fine room. Pity it faces north, of course. I mean, you'll have to shut it in winter. It could cost a fortune to heat. Lady Jane hesitated. I don't know. I, I had meant to, but there, there seems to be no other... No other. In all this house, they laughed, and one of the visitors, going ahead and crossing a panelled anteroom, cried out, But here! A delicious room! Windows south, yes, and, and west! The warmest of the house! This is perfect! They followed, and the blue room echoed with exclamations. Those charming curtains with the parrots, and the blue of that petit point fire screen. But Jane, of course you must live here. Look at this citron wood desk! Lady Jane stood on the threshold, it seems that the chimney smokes hopelessly. Hopelessly? Nonsense. Have you consulted anybody? I'll send you a wonderful man. Besides, if you put in one of those one-pipe heaters... Stramer was looking over Lady Jane's shoulder. What does Mr Jones say about it? He says no one has ever been able to use this room. Not for ages. It was a housekeeper who told me. She's his great niece and seems simply to transmit his oracles. Stramer shrugged. Well, he's lived at Bell's longer than you, you have. Perhaps he's right. How absurd, one of the ladies cried. The housekeeper and Mr Jones probably spend their evenings here and don't want to be disturbed. Look, ashes on the hearth. What did I tell you? Lady Jane echoed the laugh as they turned away. 
They had still to see the library, damp and dilapidated, the panelled dining room, the breakfast parlour and such rooms as had any old furniture left. Not many, for the late Lords of Bells at one time or another had evidently sold most of its removable treasures. When the visitors came down, their motors were waiting. A lamp had been placed in the hall, but the rooms beyond were lit only by the broad, clear band of western sky showing through uncurtained casements. On the doorstep, one of the ladies exclaimed that she'd lost her handbag. No, she remembered. She had laid it on the desk in the blue room. Which way was the blue room? I'll get it, Jane said, turning back. She heard Stramer following. He asked if he could bring the lamp. Oh, no, I can see. She crossed the threshold of the blue room, guided by the light from its western window. Then she stopped. Someone was in the room already. She felt, rather than saw, another presence. Stramer behind her paused also. He did not speak or move. What she saw, or thought she saw, was simply an old man with bent shoulders turning away from the citron wood desk. Almost before she had received the impression, there was no one there, only the slightest stir of the needlework curtain over the farther door. She heard no step or other sound. There's the bag, she said, as if the act of speaking and saying something obvious were a relief. In the hall, her glance crossed Stramer's, but failed to find there the reflection of what her own had registered. He shook hands, smiling. Well, goodbye. I commit you to Mr Jones's care. Only don't let him say that you're not shown to visitors. She smiled. Come back and try. And then shivered a little as the lights of the last motor vanished beyond the great black hedges. In 1919, M.R. James published A Thin Ghost, the third of his four volumes of ghost stories, and it is from this volume that I take his mysterious tale, Two Doctors. I won't say much to preempt the mystery of it now. For those who are interested, there is the Penguin annotated edition of James edited by S.T. Joshi. I'll only note that this is a story involving more than one narrator, as I'll try to make clear, and that a bedstaff mentioned early in Two Doctors, is a kind of wooden pin formerly used to keep bedclothes in place. Two Doctors. It is a very common thing, in my experience, to find papers shut up in old books, but one of the rarest things to come across any such that are at all interesting. Still, it does happen, and one should never destroy them unlooked at. Now, It was a practice of mine before the war occasionally to buy old ledgers of which the paper was good and which possessed a good many blank leaves and to extract these and use them for my own notes and writings. One such I purchased for a small sum in 1911. It was tightly clasped and its boards were warped by having for years been obliged to embrace a number of extraneous sheets. Three quarters of this inserted matter had lost all vestige of importance for any living human being. One bundle had not. That it belonged to a lawyer is certain, for it is endorsed the strangest case I have yet met, and bears initials and an address in Gray's Inn. It is only materials for a case, and consists of statements by possible witnesses. The man who would have been the defendant or prisoner seems never to have appeared. The dossier is not complete. But, 
such as it is, it furnishes a riddle in which the supernatural Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Appears to play a part. You must see what you can make of it. The following is the setting and the tale as I elicit it. The scene is Islington in 1718 and the time, the month of June. A countryfied place, therefore, and a pleasant season. Dr. Abel was walking in his garden one afternoon, waiting for his horse to be brought round, that he might set out on his visits for the day. To him entered his confidential servant, Luke Jennett, who had been with him twenty years. I said I wished to speak to him, and what I had to say might take some quarter of an hour. He accordingly bade me go into his study, which was a room opening on the terrace path, where he was walking, and came in himself and sat down. I told him that much against my will I must look out for another place. He inquired what was my reason, in consideration I had been so long with him. I said if he would excuse me he would do me a great kindness, because I was one that always liked to have everything pleasant about me. Then, says he, you must have some complaint to make, and if I could I would willingly set it right. And at that I told him, not seeing how I could keep it back, the matter of my former affidavit, and of the bedstaff in the dispensing room, and said that a house where such things happened was no place for me, at which he, looking very black upon me, said no more, but called me fool, and said he would pay what was owing me in the morning, and so his horse, being waiting, went out. After that I took service here and there, not for long at a time, and saw no more of him till I came to be Dr Quinn's man at Dodd's Hall in Islington. There is one very obscure part in this statement, namely the reference to the former affidavit and the matter of the bedstaff. The former affidavit is not in the bundle of papers. It is to be feared that it was taken out to be read because of its special oddity and not put back. Of what nature the story was may be guessed later, 
but as yet no clue has been put into our hands. The rector of Islington, Jonathan Pratt, is the next to step forward. He furnishes particulars of the standing and reputation of Dr Abel and Dr Quinn, both of whom lived and practised in his parish. It is not to be supposed, he says, that a physician should be a regular attendant at morning and evening prayers or at the Wednesday lectures, but within the measure of their ability I would say that both these persons fulfilled their obligations as loyal members of the Church of England. At the same time, as you desire my private mind, I must say Dr A was to me a source of perplexity. Dr Q, to my eye, a plain, honest believer, not inquiring over-closely into points of belief, but squaring his practice to what lights he had. The other interested himself in questions to which Providence, as I hold, designs no answer to be given us in this state. He would ask me, for example, what place I believed those beings now to hold in the scheme of creation, which by some are thought neither to have stood fast when the rebel angels fell, nor to have joined with them to the full pitch of their transgression. As was suitable, my first answer to him was a question. What warrant had he for supposing any such beings to exist? For that there was none in scripture, I took it he was aware. It appeared for as I am on the subject the whole tale may be given, that he grounded himself on such passages as that of the satyr which Jerome tells us conversed with Antony, but thought too that some parts of scripture might be cited in support. And besides, said he, you notice the universal belief among those that spend their days and nights abroad, and I would add that if your calling took you so continuously as it does me about the country lanes by night, you might not be so surprised as I see you to be by my suggestion. You are then of John Milton's mind, I said, and hold that millions of spiritual creatures walk the earth, unseen, both when we wake and when we sleep. I do not know, he said, why Milton should take upon himself to say unseen, though to be sure he was blind when he wrote that. But for the rest, why, yes, I think he was in the right. Well, I said, Though not so often as you, I am not seldom called abroad pretty late, but I have no mind of meeting a satyr in our Islington lanes in all the years I have been here, and if you have had the better luck, I am sure the Royal Society would be glad to know of it. I am reminded of these trifling expressions because Dr. A took them so ill, stamping out of the room in a huff. But this was not the only time that our conversation took a remarkable turn. There was an evening when he came in, at first seeming gay and in good spirits, but afterwards as he sat and smoked by the fire, falling into a musing way, out of which to rouse him I said pleasantly that I supposed he had had no meetings of late with his odd friends, a question which did effectually arouse him, for he looked most wildly and as if scared upon me, and said, You were never there. I did not see you. Who brought you? And then in a more collected tone, what was this about a meeting? I believe I must have been in a doze. To which I answered that I was thinking of fauns and centaurs in the dark lane and not of a witch's sabbath, but it seemed he took it differently. Well, said he, I can plead guilty to neither, but I find you very much more of a sceptic than becomes your cloth. If you care to know about the dark lane, 
You might do worse than ask my housekeeper that lived at the other end of it when she was a child. Yes, said I, and the old women in the almshouse and the children in the kennel. If I were you, I would send to your brother Quinn for a bolus to clear your brain. Damn Quinn, says he. Talk no more of him. He has embezzled four of my best patients this month. I believe it is that cursed man of his, Janet, that used to be with me. His tongue is never still. It should be nailed to the pillory if he had his deserts. This, I may say, was the only time of his showing me that he had any grudge against either Dr. Quinn or Janet. And as was my business, I did my best to persuade him he was mistaken in them. Yet it could not be denied that some respectable families in the parish had given him the cold shoulder, and for no reason that they were willing to allege. The end was that he said he bore Dr. Quinn no malice. I think I now remember what observation of mine drew him into the train of thought which he next pursued. It was, I believe, my mentioning some juggling tricks which my brother in the East Indies had seen. A convenient thing enough, said Dr. Abel to me. If by some arrangement a man could get the power of communicating motion and energy to inanimate objects, as if the axe should move itself against him that lifts it, something of that kind? Well, I don't know that that was in my mind so much, but if you could summon such a volume from your shelf, or even order it to open at the right page... He was sitting by the fire. It was a cold evening and stretched out his hand that way, and just then the fire-irons, or at least the poker, fell over towards him with a great clatter, and I did not hear what else he said. But I told him that I could not easily conceive of an arrangement, as he called it, of such a kind that would not include, as one of its conditions, a heavier payment than any Christian would care to make, to which he assented. But, he said, I have no doubt these bargains can be made very tempting, very persuasive. Still, you would not favour them, eh, Doctor? No, I suppose not. This is as much as I know of Dr. Abel's mind, and the feeling between these men. Dr. Quinn, as I said, was a plain, honest creature, and a man to whom I would have gone, indeed I have before now gone to him, for advice on matters of business. He was, however, every now and again, and particularly of late, not exempt from troublesome fancies. There was certainly a time when he was so much harassed by his dreams that he could not keep them to himself, but would tell them to his acquaintances and among them to me. I was at supper at his house, and he was not inclined to let me leave him at my usual time. If you go, he said, there will be nothing for it, but I must go to bed and dream of the chrysalis. You might be worse off, said I. I do not think it, he said, and he shook himself like a man who is displeased with the complexion of his thoughts. I only meant, said I, that a chrysalis is an innocent thing. This one is not, he said, and I do not care to think of it. However, sooner than lose my company, he was fain to tell me, for I pressed him, that this was a dream, which had come to him several times of late, and even more than once in a night. It was to this effect that he seemed to himself to wake 
under an extreme compulsion to rise and go out of doors. So he would dress himself and go down to his garden door. By the door there stood a spade which he must take and go out into the garden and at a particular place in the shrubbery, somewhat clear, and upon which the moon shone, for there was always in his dream a full moon, he would feel himself forced to dig, and after some time the spade would uncover something light-coloured, which he would perceive to be a stuff, linen, or woollen, and this he must clear with his hands. It was always the same, of the size of a man and shaped like the chrysalis of a moth, with the folds showing a promise of an opening at one end. He could not describe how gladly he would have left all at this stage and run to the house, but he must not escape so easily. So with many groans, and knowing only too well what to expect, he parted these folds of stuff, or, as it sometimes seemed to be, membrane, and disclosed a head, covered with a smooth pink skin, which, breaking as the creature stirred, showed him his own face in a state of death. The telling of this so much disturbed him that I was forced out of mere compassion to sit with him the greater part of the night and talk with him upon indifferent subjects. He said that upon every recurrence of this dream he woke and found himself, as it were, fighting for his breath. Another extract from Luke Jennett's long continuous statement comes in at this point. I never told tales of my master, Dr. Abel, to anybody in the neighbourhood. When I was in another service, I remember to have spoken to my fellow servants about the matter of the bedstaff, but when I came back to Islington and found Dr. Abel still there, who I was told had left the parish, I was clear that it behoved me to use great discretion, for indeed I was afraid of the man, and it is certain I was no party to spreading any ill report of him. My master, Dr. Quinn, was a very just, honest man, and no maker of mischief. I am sure he never stirred a finger nor said a word by way of inducement to a soul to make them leave going to Dr. Abel and come to him. Nay, he would hardly be persuaded to attend them that came until he was convinced that if they did not, they would send into the town for a physician rather than do as they had hitherto done. I believe it may be proved that Dr. Abel came into my master's house more than once. We had a new chambermaid out of Hertfordshire, and she asked me who was the gentleman that was looking after the master, that is Dr. Quinn, when he was out, and seemed so disappointed that he was out. She said whoever he was, he knew the way of the house well, running at once into the study and then into the dispensing room, and last into the bedchamber. It was just after this that my master began to have his bad nights, and complained to me and other persons and in particular what discomfort he suffered from his pillow and bedclothes. He said he must buy some to suit him and should do his own marketing, and accordingly brought home a parcel which he said was of the right quality, but where he bought it we had then no knowledge, only they were marked in thread with a coronet and a bird. The women said they were of a sort not commonly met with and very fine and my master said they were the comfortablest he ever used, and he slept now both soft and deep. Also, the feather pillows were the best sorted, and his head would sink into them as if they were a cloud, which I have myself remarked several times when I came to wake him of a morning, his face being almost hid by the pillow closing over it. 
I had never any communication with Dr. Abel after I came back to Islington, but one day when he passed me in the street and asked me whether I was not looking for another service, to which I answered I was very well suited where I was, but he said I was a tickle-minded fellow, and he doubted not he should soon hear I was on the world again, which indeed proved true. Dr. Pratt is next taken up where he left off. On the 16th I was called up out of bed soon after it was light, that is, about five, with a message that Dr. Quinn was dead or dying. Making my way to his house, I found there was no doubt which was the truth. All the persons in the house, except the one that let me in, were already in his chamber and standing about his bed, but none touching him. He was stretched in the midst of the bed on his back, without any disorder, and indeed had the appearance of one ready laid out for burial. His hands, I think, were even crossed on his breast. The only thing not usual was that nothing was to be seen of his face, the two ends of the pillow or bolster appearing to be closed quite over it. These I immediately pulled apart, at the same time rebuking those present, and especially the man, for not at once coming to the assistance of his master. He, however, only looked at me and shook his head, having evidently no more hope than myself that there was anything but a corpse before us. Indeed, it was plain to anyone possessed of the least experience that he was not only dead, but had died of suffocation. Nor could it be conceived that his death was accidentally caused by the mere folding of the pillow over his face. How should he not, feeling the oppression, have lifted his hands to put it away? Where is not a fold of the sheet which was closely gathered about him, as I now observed, was disordered. The next thing was to procure a physician. I had bethought me of this on leaving my house, and sent on the messenger who had come to me to Dr. Abel, but now I heard that he was away from home, and the nearest surgeon was got, who, however, could tell no more, at least without opening the body, than we already knew. As to any person entering the room with evil purpose, which was the next point to be cleared, it was visible that the bolts of the door were burst from their stanchions, and the stanchions broken away from the doorpost by main force, and there was a sufficient body of witness, the smith among them, to testify that this had been done but a few minutes before I came. The chamber being, moreover, at the top of the house, the window was neither easy of access, nor did it show any sign of an exit made that way, either by marks upon the sill or footprints below upon soft mould. The surgeon's evidence forms, of course, part of the report of the inquest, but since it has nothing but remarks upon the healthy state of the larger organs and the coagulation of blood in various parts of the body, it need not be reproduced here. The verdict was death by the visitation of God. Annexed to the other papers is one which I was at first inclined to suppose had made its way among them by mistake. Upon further consideration, I think I can divine a reason for its presence. It relates to the rifling of a mausoleum in Middlesex, which stood in a park, now broken up, the property of a noble family which I will not name. The outrage was not that of an ordinary resurrection man, 
the object, it seemed likely, was theft. The account is blunt and terrible. I shall not quote it. A dealer in the north of London suffered heavy penalties as a receiver of stolen goods in connection with the affair. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.